All right, let's do it. Welcome to another episode of the Launch Notes podcast. I'm Blake Thorne from Launch Notes. Really excited to be joined today by Patrick Thompson, who's joining us from Amplitude, where he's a director of product. Patrick, welcome to the Launch Notes podcast. Thanks so much for being here, man. Blake, excited to be here, and thanks for having me. Let's do the let's do the quick kind of tour of your background and how you found your way into PM because I know you you had kind of kind of cracked into product work. They were working on other things before that. I think there was maybe a startup in the mix. Like let's get the kind of quick tour of your background. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, it was definitely a roundabout road. I don't think any journey here is very linear. I first started actually on my career in marketing. So funny enough, I was sitting underneath the, the CMO at an early stage startup doing mostly conversion rate optimization. So primarily focusing on analytics and experimentation and A-B testing. So kind of managed a backlog of experiments from that perspective, focusing on you know, growing the business, but didn't traditionally sit within kind of building product. And that was kind of one of the things that I was very excited by. I had a background in business and eventually ended up transitioning over into more of a product design role, not actually a product manager role. I moved up to San Francisco or for a variety of different startups. Eventually ended up reporting to Varun Parmar, who is VP of product at a company called Ascendant. Uh, and he kind of took me under his wing, brought me over to the next company that he joined as a product manager, kind of dipped my toes into that water for about three years. I will definitely say the water was a bit warmer than I expected. I think I was hopefully not, not swimming too fast and keeping my head afloat. I actually met my co-founder there at that company where he was the co-founder of, and we ended up starting a company together called Iteratively. I had a stint at Atlassian for four years where I actually met Travis and Tyler, the rest of the launch notes team there, where I was more on the design leadership side, but eventually kind of jumped ship, went over to the startup. And that was really kind of where I cut my teeth on the product management world, had to learn a lot about product strategy, prioritization, go to market sales, I had to be very, very T-shaped. And eventually kind of after two years got acquired by Amplitude and it's where I'm currently at as a director of product with the team of PMs reporting to me really focusing on some of our new product initiatives, as well as improving the quality of data teams sent into Amplitude. So while I think it's easy to look back, it was definitely not a very well-mapped journey at the beginning yeah. of my career. Yeah, yeah. That's a pattern I've noticed, though, is you you, you tell the story and it makes perfect sense. And <laughs> as you know, like no, you know, no career path is totally linear. Nothing ever goes according to plan exactly, but, you know folks like you and others who are good at what they do, do a nice job of sort of making it all kind of cohesive and make sense when you, you know, give the recap yeah. like that. So that's, that's was, pretty cool. I was, yeah. I was definitely blessed with the, the opportunity to move up to the Bay early in my career where I think that was For sure. in, instrumental in, in some of my success. I think there's definitely a lot of good that came from that transition. And then I think obviously had a couple of folks who took a really mm -hmm. keen interest in my career who gave me a lot of advice early yeah. on and kind of help shape that direction. And then I think one of the biggest advices I give to people is just keep your eyes open for, for new opportunities. And, you know, there's the, the Jim Carrey movie, which is mm -hmm. always a, an interesting one around yeah. not saying no. Yeah. And I think yeah. I had a lot of opportunities come by and jumped on them. And that was definitely something that I would recommend for folks is just keep your eyes open. Yeah. That's awesome. Were you in the, so you were, I think we were, I think our overlap at Atlassian, cause I was at Atlassian 2016 to 2019. So mm -hmm. we we're probably in the same office there that their, their office in Soma probably. Yeah. 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 And then we, they moved to the bigger one in the financial district and probably 
17 or 18, they moved to the, that bigger tower. Yeah, I was, I was fortunate. I did two years in San Francisco at 7th and Harrison. That's uh, working right. Working on growth at Alaska okay. and then moved to Sydney nice. kind of at HQ for two years. So yeah. that's where I had an opportunity to go work on yeah. Greenhouse and then eventually that mm -hmm. transitioned over to leading design for Jira Software. And that was a, a fun experience to, to not only live yeah. in Sydney, but be, I'd say, closer to the mothership. Yeah, um, I imagine. Just, yeah, it was, it, was, yeah, it was awesome. Nice, nice. Very cool. Maybe... Tell us a little more about Amplitude and, and maybe just like kind of what that, you know, what that company is doing, what you've been working on there. Cause it's a really, it's a really compelling company and category. Obviously a lot of people working in product know about it. I feel like if you don't by now you should, but the whole kind of like realm of product analytics is, is super interesting. It has been kind of on this like exciting trajectory for a couple of years now. Can you maybe just kind of give us the landscape there and, and some of the exciting stuff going on with Amplitude and the whole product analytics category. Yeah, happy to. Amplitude's a digital analytics platform. So we're not just a product analytics company these, these days. Sure, we're sure. a, a multi-product company. We do obviously product analytics. We do experimentation. We have a customer development platform or a customer data platform that makes it easy for you to capture and then federate your data to a bunch of different platforms. But you can kind of think of Amplitude as mission is to really help teams build better software. And the way that we want to do that is through data-driven decision-making. So we're really trying to kind of have that entire build measure loop handled mm -hmm. within one application where you can go and uh, generate a unique insight based off quantitative data, be able to ship an experiment, and then be able to measure the outcome of the work that you do as a team. And we're really mm -hmm. trying to build the entire end-to-end tool set that enables that for, for organizations. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. And it's a really, yeah, that's for a lot of folks, like it, it's easy to sort of take for granted the kind of sophistication of tools that you have access to like that now. And, you know, you kind of think back, back in the day, like all this stuff that you can like make database decisions on, like you may have not have ever even had a record of it. Like there, it never would have gotten logged. It never would have gotten, you know, like, but now it's like every, every, click basically that a user, every action a user takes can be sort of like measured and analyzed and sort of used as fuel to create insights and business decisions and stuff like that. And it sounds yeah. like you guys have kind of widened the aperture beyond that even, which is super exciting. Yeah. And I think this is where I, I remember giving a talk at Alaskan actually on, you know, qualitative and quantitative data. I think Amplitude is very focused on the quantitative data. And obviously there's the qualitative mm -hmm. data, customer feedback, sentiment, support ticket analysis. There's a bunch of other inputs that you get into your kind of product management arsenal that helps you inform great decision-making. But mm -hmm. I think the quantitative side was typically only you know, gated to your Googles, your Netflix, your Amazons of the world, the ones that had big data science teams, you can actually analyze this and generate unique insights. And now obviously with tools like Amplitude in the mix, like it's very easy to democratize data-driven decision-making. It's really easy to give folks like product managers beyond just data analysts, data scientists, the ability to be able to go analyze their customer experience. And then obviously use that insight to, to generate and inform hypotheses and decisions that they make around their, their product roadmap or strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's such a great point. And it's, yeah, I love that. And it's, it's one of my favorite things about working in this industry is like, that is kind of like the macro trend of like all things where it's like the kind of democratizing things that used to only be 
available to folks with massive resources or massive, you know, head starts and cash and stuff like that, where it's like, great now, whether it's like cloud architecture or product analytics or, you know, this tool or that, that, you know, open source program or whatever, it's just like, we're kind of in the business of saying like, okay, what does like, what do massive enterprises have only, you know, they can access now. And, and now we can make like available to, you know, to companies big and small, like that's such like a fun part of working in this industry. Yeah. I think the democratizing access is, is great. I think the other thing that we're very focused on is speed of insight as well. So you can mm-hmm. traditionally, right, if you think about the number of iterations that you have within kind of build, measure, learn loop, what we call the yeah. insights to action loop at amplitude, yeah. it's, you know, if you're only doing one or two cycles of iteration every quarter, like obviously your mm-hmm. ability to be successful and learn and iterate is going to be impacted. But if we can make it easy enough for you to capture data, generate the unique insight, do the post analysis inside of our product, quicker, Mm -hmm. then obviously you can have more iterations and and reach better outcomes much, much, much sooner. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then fine tune that decision-making intuition that you have as a, as a product manager, as a team. Yeah. I mean, this might be a real kind of novice question, but bear with me because I I've bumped up against all sorts of examples of stuff like this, you know, like the only, the, the teams I've worked on where it's like, great, we've got like all this access to data and information, but sort of like kind of translating that into an insider, like knowing what questions to ask, like knowing what corners to look around, knowing how to like collate into insights. Like how do you all, from like a kind of product builder perspective, like how do you think about like enabling users to actually turn, you know, data and records into, into insights and into, you know, questions and answers and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think this also stems kind of from the, the big data transition that we've had over the last decade where folks right. wanted to capture tons and tons of information, not just about customer behavior, but the other types of data as well with yeah. the assumption that data is valuable and that eventually they're going to analyze this or eventually they're going to be able to generate insights that kind of move the business forward. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm, I'd say I am, and I would say Amplitude as well, is be a little bit more opinionated around what questions or or success metrics mm-hmm. you want to instrument, what are really driving your business forward. Yeah. I think the best way to do this is to really borrow from, from Reforge here and really just define your growth model for your business. Mm-hmm. And once you've defined your growth model, instrumenting every single loop, every single interaction that really is a input or output metric of that growth model, and mm-hmm. understanding that like, Hey, if I was to change this particular loop, as an example, this is the expected outcome of that. And then that's kind of what we classify as kind of our tier one metrics or tier one instrumentation and making sure. sure that that's all kind of locked and loaded. And then when you think about kind of the exploratory analysis, obviously there's cases where you're going to, you're not going to know every question you're going to have before you ship a feature or ship a product. And so mm-hmm. when it comes to exploratory analysis is understanding, are there any kind of proxy metrics that you can use? Are there any other types of queries that you might be able to analyze from from your database, from Amplitude, from other places to give you enough signal to be able to make an informed decision? And then eventually, obviously, going in and instrumenting that. That was one of the reasons we called iteratively, iteratively, was because Mm. instrumentation and data is a very iterative process. At the end of the day, you're not going to get it right from day zero. You're going to have to continually instrument and re-instrument depending on your, your business needs and as your business evolves. Yeah. Yeah. I I imagine that can be maybe not the most obvious realization to other stakeholders in the business though. I I bet there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, data, you know, BI insights analysis, whatever. It's like, it's like plug it in. Now it's up and running. Now we, we can get our, you know, we can get what we need out of it, but 
the, the, yeah, the, the best building blocks approach might be a something that I, I, I picture you having to convince people of that in certain organizations. <laughs> yeah. The best analogy I do is I'm actually borrowing from software engineering here is to treat analytics kind of like, like test coverage where it's like, mm. obviously you're never going to hit hundred percent test coverage for, mm. for, for code quality. But like, if you have this desired outcome of like, Hey, how, what's good enough for us to be able to power the business. And then when yeah. you think about test coverage, as you ship each new feature you ship, you're going to obviously write unit tests or intent tests or include them into your existing intent tests. Yeah. Um, it doesn't yeah. always happen as an example, but if you think about analytics as a, an iterative part of your SDLC, your software development lifecycle, mm -hmm. you think about instrumentation from a kind of a code coverage perspective. That's mm -hmm. the best analogy that I have that really kind of helps engineers and product managers and other business stakeholders get aligned where it's like, Obviously, we wouldn't want to ship features without tests. We wouldn't want to ship features or experiments right. without analytics. Right. Uh, it's just part of the cost of doing business these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the one thing that you run into is this this kind of, I, I'd say, headwind within a lot of more, I, w I wouldn't say bad product managers. I would say just people who aren't necessarily as informed, where a lot of times when you come to speed of shipping, like you want to get things out the door as quickly as you can. And one of the first things that typically goes is, is analytics. And mm. I think this is an easy thing where it's like, if your CEO asks you like, Hey, what, how was, how do you know that this experiment was successful? Or how do you know that this, this feature was successful and you don't have instrumentation really at the end of the day, that's not <laughs> the team's problem. That should be the product manager's problem. Like you're the one that's ultimately responsible for the success of the work that your team's working on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things where I think you have to, we, as an industry, we have to get better at just like making sure that one, we can obviously mm -hmm. educate everyone about the value of data and then to make it as easy as possible to instrument mm -hmm. and capture high quality data that your, your business can rely on. Yeah. And then also organizationally leadership needs to care about data as well and reward data driven decision-making in the processes that they do. Again, we don't want to be a feature factory here, just shipping work after work after work. We want to make sure yeah. that we're highlighting key wins that are really moving the business forward. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's like the whole, like, you know, data driven and like making data driven decisions has become like, it became like the ultimate buzzword in the industry and yeah. almost like cliche to the point where it's like, I'm always sort of back into the question, like, like give me an example. Like, are you, are you really, or are you just sort of like paying <laughs> lip service to that? But no, I mean, you, you make a great point there. Uh, yeah. I think it's interesting. Even if you look at, I use the, there, you know, ADG three from Alassian, which you're obviously probably familiar oh, with. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're giving me flashbacks now. <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, we, we launched a, and for, for folks who are not ex Alassians, we launched a new version of our, our design language and a new navigation. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a mm -hmm. complete visual refresh of our mm -hmm. application. And this was a, yeah. I would say, a, you know, it was a 12 plus month effort across hundreds of people internally. And mm -hmm. when you think about data informed versus data driven, I think our quantitative measures for that project actually, when we initially shipped were, were conclusively false. Mm, <laughs> so, okay. but at the end of the day, you know, we still ended up shipping that experience because it put us in a situation where we can build upon kind of this new foundational layer, even though that the experiment that we set out to do and the, the success measures for that experiment didn't have the desired outcome that we originally hoped to have. And, yeah. you know, this goes back into some things are, are too big to fail where, you know, if you think about data driven, data informed, um, there's definitely, I, I definitely fall into the camp of data informed, not necessarily data driven at the end of the, at the end of the day. 
And there's yeah. obviously much, a lot of other signals or business strategy that has to take into account on, on what you're doing as well, if it aligns to the organizational goals. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that this, this highlights for me is this, this notion of data maturity. I think we talk about data maturity mm -hmm. a lot and there's different scales of data maturity within different industries and verticals as well as organizations. One of the mm -hmm. things that we looked at for our ICP with iteratively, our ideal customer profile was some sense of data maturity. And you can think about low, medium, and high maturity organizations. And mm. like every model at the end of the day is flawed, but this was one that was super helpful for us to understand like, are we talking to a low mature organization who's not doing things like experimentation? They're not really, they don't really care about instrumentation. Mm. And they, most of the decisions that they're making are either hippo or they're just based off gut and intuition. And mm -hmm. If you kind of think about this as a knowledge management problem, if you document all your decisions, one of the things I loved about Atlassian was Daisy's, but a lot of people use Racy's or other things. You right, document right. decisions and you have a decision catalog of all the decisions that you made. For, out of all those decisions, how much of those were informed by data or purely mm. data driven? And mm -hmm. this kind of helps you understand, you know, as a percentage of decisions that you're making as an organization, what are the sources of data that you're making them from? And then mm -hmm. how data driven are you at the end of the day? And yeah. I'd say most organizations are purely, I'd say less than 50% of decisions are made through data. Uh, they're more made yeah. through intuition and gut. But if you yeah. look at certain industries like e-commerce, B2C marketplaces, these industries are, are anecdotally way more data driven. They rely on data and they rely on data way more heavily. And they're, the people that they yeah. hire value data. <laughs> yeah. And it makes the job yeah. an analytics provider or yeah. a data team much, much easier. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, I, I'm, I'm always referencing this, like the whole world of B2C and like, like e-com is a great sort of subset of that, that you mentioned, like so many things with like, from go to market to analytics, to, you know, to, to sales and marketing and branding. And it was like, there's so many lessons in that world for b for, you know, for, for B2B builders and B2B companies, like, and that's sort of like the trends are going. And like, you think about the world of like B2C, like, the unit economics of their products are such that they can't have these long, expensive sales cycles with like a bunch of executives in the room for every, like they're selling something that might be $20, $30 that they, you know, like, so in order to sort of like tap in and operate at scale, like, yeah, they do it with, they do it with data and, and insights and like very mature ways of operating. And it can be very easy in B2B world to think you're in this like ivory tower, but it's like, man, they're doing some like very sophisticated things on the B2C side because the business model demands it, right? Like won't allow it for you'd operate. Yeah. I've I worked at both extremes, right? I've worked, I started out in e-commerce where, you know, we had such, we had enough traffic and mm -hmm. enough marketing spend where we can make really quick decisions and iterate really, really quickly on ad yeah. copy to user experience to everything versus you go into B2B and like, even at Alassian where we had, you know, millions and millions mm -hmm. of monthly active users and, and thousands of, of weekly signups, it was still hard for us to do what I've called high velocity experimentation. Um, it'd still take us weeks, if not months to get results back on some of the experiments that we're running, which is just mm -hmm. not the case for most B2C organizations that are operating at the scale of, you know, you know, Tinder or other, other types of organizations where you just have a massive customer base. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know, part of me who's, I mean, I've worked in B2B now for roughly the last 
10 plus years of my career, like, obviously that's, it's super exciting when I think about that. Uh, yeah. I've also worked at organizations like EMC where we had a 10,000 person field sales team. Right. And at the end of the day, you mm-hmm. do, you know, do your, your, your EBRs, QBRs, and your sales team yeah. is very incentivized to tell you what you should be building as a product manager. Yeah. And that is yeah. the other side of the, the spectrum. And I feel like, you know, the nice thing about product-led sales and, and PLG and, and even, you know, as an example, I think Elastian's in, in kind of the sweet spot where you can still inform decisions based off customer feedback and some of the needs of your largest organization, your largest enterprise organizations, but also really build mm-hmm. from a bottom-up mentality where you're focusing on building a very easy-to-use experience, focusing on onboarding and growth at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And I'd say even Amplitude has a, has a nice split there where we do have a growth team. We are working heavily on improving the ease of use of the product experience. We're focusing a lot on onboarding and activation while still obviously trying to satisfy the needs of our our sales and field team when it comes to enterprise adoption. Yeah. Yeah. I want to come back. I want to visit something that you, you mentioned a minute or two ago around (laughs) just like data maturity of organizations. And you mentioned you kind of classify them as like low, medium, high. As you think through that, like walk me through, like what would be maybe like the, the hallmarks or the tenants that you would look for in like, you know, if like what's a low, low maturity organization, medium, high, like what are the actual things that you might see that would indicate like what level an organization is at? Yeah, it's, it, it does go back to my earlier point around like, if you have a catalog of decisions, what percentage of those decisions are made? informed okay. from data and it could be qual or quant data. I think this is actually part of the job of a product manager at the end of the day, before you prioritize anything, before you start work on anything, obviously going through analyzing all your customer feedback, understanding the motivations, like who am I building for? Why am I building this? <laughs> How do I know what success looks like? Those are the three questions I typically ask of any feature that we're mm-hmm. working on. Yeah. And obviously some of the data that you can use there is quantitative, right? Some of the data you can use there is qualitative, mm-hmm. understanding the blind between those two is kind of the matching spot in my mind. Uh, yeah. The reality is I, I still feel like most organizations fall into that low to medium spectrum. There's very few organizations who are achieving like 90% of decision-making, 90 plus percent of decision-making through data and a large, and I'm, I'm mostly looking at R and D and product development, not necessarily go to market or other teams, mm-hmm. although yeah. I would classify them as part of the organization as well. But typically yeah. you have this kind of, <laughs> unfortunately you have this a huge divide between go to market and, and R and D or product yeah. development most of the times. Yeah. Um, yeah. But within product development, I'd say most cases, most teams still rely heavily on intuition and gut. They don't think about things through an experimentation philosophy, philosophy, and they don't look to invalidate their ideas. They're looking to validate their ideas. I think this is a mm. key distinction that I, I think about when I think about data-driven organizations is, is quite often you have a, a null hypothesis, right? You're trying to like prove or disprove the idea. I think most PMs, I would say the vast majority of PMs are trying to prove out their ideas. <laughs> Whereas I'd say really good PMs are trying to disprove their ideas. They're trying to fail fast. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. That's one of the things that I'd say good PMs kind of manage is like, they don't have to be the smartest person in the room. They just have to have a process at which they can fail quick. Mm-hmm. And if their ideas fail, that's great. If the other people's ideas fail, that's great. It's the mm-hmm. goal is the, as a team, we're successful. And yeah. that one key distinction is, is very, very helpful to kind of outline a healthy organization who's trying to fail fast, essentially. Yeah. Very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. That kind of, that almost reminds me of something you said around 
and I'm a, I'm about to get way over my skis technically because I'm not a programmer, but you sort of made a comparison earlier to like test-driven software development. And my understanding around test-driven software development is like, we will build the test and then like, then build the thing and like, see if the thing fails against the test that we, which we've created. And that kind of Correct. seems to, seems to dovetail right with your idea of like, we will take this hypothesis or assumption and see if it fails against this rather than trying to just validate it because we're rooting for it or something. Yeah. I think it also goes back into, I mean, humans and systems are relatively simple. Like it's always based off incentives. Right. And so like mm -hmm. engineers, like you're incentivized to build high quality code and mostly focus on reliability, um, mm -hmm. reliability performance. These are the metrics that most engineers do, right? So when engineer instrument systems are typically in instrumenting something like some mm -hmm. application performance monitoring tool, Datadog, they have a log sure. monitoring tool, Sentry, LogRocket, you name it. And so engineers and, or, and like they have, you know, Cypress or some sort of test system and then test system in place, um, mm -hmm. as product and they're incentivized from that perspective, from a career growth perspective, right? That's mm -hmm. what, you know, if you look at the engineering yeah. career ladders, a lot of times is application performance, yep. reliability. Those are the things that are, are quite often talked mm -hmm. about and what most engineering managers care about. When you look at product managers, it's typically, obviously we want to outcomes over outputs. <laughs> we want to be outcome driven. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. we want to have successful business outcomes. Most product managers are incentivized based off the outcomes of the work that they're doing, right? So when you mm -hmm. think about success theater, a lot of the times when people are talking about the work that they've been doing, they're only highlighting the successes. They're not highlighting uh, the failures. Uh, and I think it's, and you're incentivized as a PM in most organizations to highlight the successes and the key wins that you've had that move the business mm -hmm. forward. You're not incentivized to highlight all the failures or learnings right. that you've had that make it so that the next bet or the next experiment you ship has a higher percentage chance of success. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think organizations that incentivize product managers to fail fast and incentivize learning and adopting kind of this, this outcome driven process of working mm -hmm. have a higher likelihood of success in the mm -hmm. market. Mm -hmm. uh, and those PMs will grow much faster and have a better career trajectory than PMs who are rewarded for short-term gains and, or highlighting only the wins that they've had. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit into just like other parts of the, cause we've talked a lot on the analytics side, obviously already, but like anything else in the sort of like PM stack or like PM, like builders toolkit that you're, whether it's specific tools or like kind of like categories of, of tooling or versus that are kind of in your, in your tool bag right now or something you're excited about. I mean, obviously I love the Alassian stack and sure. still to this day, I'm a huge Alassian fanboy. So sure, sure. most of the tools, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more of a, a people, you know, people over processing tools type of, of person. Mm -hmm. um, so when yeah. I think about the things that I utilize more often, it's like the Alassian playbook. So like all the plays that we d developed there mm -hmm. that I use pretty much on a weekly basis, the, the, oh, the ability cool. to facilitate whether or not that's in person or remotely using a tool like Mira has been extremely mm -hmm. helpful for, mm -hmm. for my career. So I think it's more of these softer skills, less so the, the harder tools that I use. I mean, obviously I am a yeah. fan like launch notes and 
other mm -hmm. tools that allow me to communicate with my customers. So at iteratively, yeah. we use Intercom, Launch Notes, big fan of Notion as well. Mm -hmm. Although we're using Confluence now, and, and I am happy to be back on that. And then obviously product adoption software, yeah, user, user flow, excited about a new one that came out called Dops. Yeah. So making it really easy for you to communicate to your customers the things that you've changed, to change boarding, change management, essentially. Mm -hmm. Found really good success with that mm -hmm. engagement platform at Alaska, yeah. which is what we built internally. And obviously mm -hmm. there's now tools that make this much, much easier. So there's not really much else that I use. I mean, as a manager, most of my days are filled in meetings and on Slack and Zoom. So I'm kind mm -hmm. of out of the tools realm, for unfortunately. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. What about... Whether it's you know specific tools or technologies or way ways of working ways or th ways of thinking and operating even what do you think PMs are going to have to get stronger at maybe than you know they've had to so far? So I, I, yeah, I, so when I think about what makes a really great PM, I think obviously the ability to to communicate succinctly is always helpful, right? Yeah. So. You can be as factually accurate as you want, but if people can't understand what you're saying, or if it's not easy for folks to retain the information that you're saying, it's not yeah. capable. So yeah. brevity is always something that I tend to lean for, which is like short, concise answers while documenting your decisions, being transparent around how you're making decisions mm. and really bringing people along on the journey. I think where yeah. things tend to fail is when you kind of have this heroes, you know, you, you tend to have more of the dictator type product manager who's like, Hey, this is the way. And people are right. like, well, I don't think this is the way. And the at the end of the day, it's like your job as a PM is to help bring the team along on the journey. But at the end of the day, it's also to help facilitate mm -hmm. and gather as much information as you can from the team as well to help define what that journey actually looks like and mm. the best pms i feel like are the ones that are pushing from behind not leading from the front <laughs> and i feel yeah. like there's this yeah. cultural misconception around you know this magnanimous person which is this pm archetype mm -hmm. and there's yeah. many different ways of being a great product manager and i feel like great product managers are the ones who obviously lead from behind they help set the vision they help articulate where not only should the business go, but the product and the needs of the customer essentially. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think for me, it's like clear communica communication, being able to bring everyone along on the journey and documenting the, mm -hmm. the process, documenting the decisions. Yeah. And I'd say yeah. lastly, the only other thing I would recommend for folks is like, they should not only be the voice of the customer, they should like, they should they should know their customer better than anybody else in the business. Mm -hmm. And I would say not yeah. just by like a factor of one, but like a factor of 10, right? Mm -hmm. So when somebody talks about a customer, you're like, I know that customer's pain points. I know the people who are using my product within that customer, within that yes. account. Yeah. I know yeah. every single problem that they have. I know their organizational OKRs. I know, yeah. I know their metrics. Yeah. I know this customer yes. enough where I could go join them and hit the ground running on day zero if I was to join mm -hmm. my company. And I feel like that level of obsession is hard for, for a lot of folks because you have to go understand multiple different businesses. You have to understand exactly how to make your customers successful. 
make that company successful in the context of B2B. Yeah, um, yeah. And this might be a little bit different in the B2C context. I obviously have a bias towards B2B, yeah. but knowing your customers, like, and tangentially knowing your product better than anybody else as well. There's mm -hmm. a lot of folks, I think this is, there's also this bias, the, the higher in the organization you get, where I feel like you get a little bit more disconnected from the product that you're selling. Right, right, <laughs> right. Senior leaders, VPs, C-suite haven't necessarily used the products or they aren't using the product as a, as a customer. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily experience the pain um, that customers are facing. Right. And if you're in, again, a lot of the times you're not necessarily building for yourself, you're building for your customer base. Yeah. And in the context yeah. of Amplitude is really nice. In the context of Alassian was really nice because we were effectively our customer to some extent. We were dog fooding Jira every single day. Mm -hmm. We were dog fooding Amplitude every single day. Yeah. And it makes it yeah. easier to, 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 to build or have that degree of empathy or compassion for your customer. But yeah. the higher up you get, I feel like you have to fight this organizational disconnect mm -hmm. of not being the customer or not using the product. Right. And the farther away you get from that person, the easier it is for you to make like type one errors when it comes to decision-making like, oh, I'm not yeah. gonna invest in usability. Or I'm not gonna invest in performance because yeah. I don't see them as a problem. Yeah. Instead, I'm gonna invest in feature functionality that's oh blocking people. Yeah. There are, <laughs> there's so many execs too that are like, oh, I use the product every day, but it's like, yeah, you're kind of like an executive read only mode at this point. Like you look at some dashboards and like you, you know, like you, you glean some reports and stuff from whatever the product is. But like, there's like these layers, there's like a layer below that where you're like hands on, like creating the data and instrumenting things. And even below that, where it's like, I'm on the ground, like setting it up and configuring and like, monk you know, like you're not Mr. Executive, like monkeying around with the permission settings. If like a new, you know, like, Hey, we hired someone new, but they used to work here before. So like their, their email address has changed, but their employee ID is the same. We got to do something here. And it's just like, you're not feeling that pain point. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's, I mean, there's a lot of people who, I think struggle with the the player coach model where you were the player at the end of the day. Like you were, you were, let's assume you were a senior product manager and you get promoted into group product manager and eventually end up at the yeah. VP level. And then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm used to having hands-on and this could be the same for design. This could be the same for engineering. It doesn't matter. Like you were an engineer mm -hmm. and you were writing code and now you're not writing code and you have a preconceived yeah. way of like how, what good looks like. And I think right. there's a, a struggle going into management of, of kind of letting go and like, handing over the reins to somebody else. And I've definitely mm -hmm. felt that myself. I think the, the hardest part is the higher up in the organization you get is the finding that inertia to disconnect from the product and disconnect from the customer mm -hmm. or yeah. And I'd say disconnect from the product experience. And I think for me coming from Alassia and, and more aligning with my core principles as a product manager is I'm, I'm very obsessed or obsessive mm -hmm. about building a great product. Yeah. And that is something that I try to instill in everybody that I work with. And I try to up level from a, a team perspective, but mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily always align, I'd say horizontally with other counterparts that I work with and, yeah. and other folks. And it's, it's something that I take pride in and mm -hmm. encourages me to show up every single day is to build a great product for mm -hmm. customers who I love. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah. that's something that I think really does make for a great PM. I love I loved every point you made too around knowing the customer and it's like it it's such an important it's such an important thing to develop and like you said it's like f for me a hallmark of that when I run across you know PMs or a lot of times like 
folks who are really great at sales, like I've interacted with some, with some sales folks who are like excellent at this, like they, the hallmark for me is like when they know not just like the stated motivations or like basically they know what's behind the things the customer tells them. It's not just like, okay, like I went to the call or like I've interviewed some customers and they told me this is important. They told me that's important. Like they know like that plus like the ulterior motives plus the people be, you know, around that person in the organization who aren't on that call or on that research call or on that sales call plus that person's, you know, explicit and implicit motives and the dynamics between the two and the tensions within like there's so much that like goes into like really getting inside like inside that perspective and yeah. too many people just for, ha have this face value understanding of like yeah this is what the customer told me is important so i know the customer yeah i think this is the thing right like when you think about incentives and incentive alignment right like salespeople are incentivized to understand their customer beyond mm -hmm. any measurable doubt right there you know as a product manager if you have salespeople telling you like, Hey, this is what's blocking this customer from being successful. The reason that they're telling you that is because it's actually impacting their comp. Right. <laughs> and so right. like they're very incentivized to give you feedback. And I love working with the good market team. I love working with sales. I love working with solutions consulting. I love working for professional services because mm -hmm. they're very transparent and honest and direct with what's causing the customer pain. And mm -hmm. as a product manager, I think this is a great source of data when it comes into what you're prioritizing on your roadmap and, and overall strategy of, of how you're allocating resources to some extent, because these are people who are talking to customers every single day. And obviously mm -hmm. I think PM should do that as well. But if you're not mm -hmm. as a product manager, as an example, right. these are the people that you can use as kind of a proxy for that. And I think one of the best things to do as a PM is to develop those skill set yourself. So I, for me, like customer discovery is my, my favorite, mm, my favorite mm -hmm. tool within my tool chest, right? Like I love talking to customers. I love mm -hmm. trying to understand their, their motivations. And these are skills that I developed through my sales and go to market experience through iteratively. Mm -hmm. This wasn't something that I did as a PM previously or mm -hmm. not as well. Let's just to say that. And if you think about product managers, go try to sell your product. Like spend a week or two weeks shadow salesperson, go try to sell the product, go understand what yeah. is stopping, what's hindering sales, what's slowing it down. Mm -hmm. And if you can actually provide concrete recommendations, you don't even have to build features, but provide concrete recommendations, do some, yeah, do some enablement with your, your field teams. Like that's going to go a long way to not only want establishing trust with these people, but also mm -hmm. helping them be successful. And at the end yeah. of the day, I think as a PM is that obviously you have your customer and your goal is to get them successful, but tangentially related, if you can help other people be successful within their roles within your company, you're not only going to build much better, you know, equity <laughs> within the organization, 100%. it's going to help you yeah. get shit done later on when yeah. you have an account that's gone red and it's because of something that the, the product or R and D team did yeah. to, you know, have strong ties with that market team. Yeah. Yeah. That, that reminds me, I was the past startup I was at, I was, I was on the GTM side, but we sort of partnered with the, with PMs on the, in the R and D side. And long story short, we opened up a bunch of new demo requests and, and basically said like, Hey, like alongside the, the sales, the, the account reps and the account executives handling these calls, like folks on GTM and, and product managers are, are actually going to like do some demos. Like you should be able to demo the product and like do some, some of the first and second calls with prospects on this. And it's like, man, talk about like, you know, getting alignment and like getting, getting buy-in with the, with the sales organization and like understanding, like to actually sit there and pitch the product and give the demo and take the questions. Like, 
you know, there's, there's nothing that kind of compares to that. Right. So that, yeah, that was a great I, experience. I, think, I would recommend to anyone. Yeah. I think there's this, this mis misperception also within, in product management as well, where the, I think a lot of PMs, especially ones that are more earlier in their careers, don't find these things as valuable. They want to work with engineers. They want to work with designers. They want to brainstorm. Mm -hmm. They want to collaborate and ship product. Yeah. But the higher up you go in your role, the more of a, yeah. the more you're a salesperson. At the end yep. of the day. You move into a director role, you're talking to more customers, you're helping alleviate their concerns. You're doing EBRs, QBRs. You move mm -hmm. into a VP role, you're primarily working not with just like, the the market and analysts, yeah. but you're also working with your largest accounts and yep. you have yep. a customer advisory board of effectively your top 10, top 20 accounts. And 100%. this is the thing where if you can develop those skill sets earlier, it's going to be less reasons. Like there's going to be less resistance to moving up yeah. the, the ladder. I say, yeah. especially if you can show that you're adding value to your go to market counterparts. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to establish the skills needed in order to be successful at the, you know, not just the yeah. product manager role, but the director or VP level role. Yeah. 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 I've always sort of seen sales and the ability to sell as like just one of those like cornerstone foundational skills. Like you can take your career in so many places, you can build so many different like things upon that foundation. But like once you, if you kind of have that early on and like, yeah. know, when, you when know the, what to do with it. One of the things that I think, and I, I strongly agree, is like everyone's responsible for sales. And it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if you're on the go-to-market yeah. team or you're on the R&D product development team. Everyone at the end of the day, like as a business, we have clearly defined goals for what success looks like from yeah. a revenue, new accounts perspective. And mm -hmm. the more you can lean in to help the business be successful, the more at the end of the day, like you're going to be successful. Obviously, nothing scales infinitely. Yeah. But yeah. there's a lot that we can do as product managers, as engineers, as designers to help folks on the other side of the table be successful at their jobs. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't shy away from that. I would definitely lean in and actually see what you can do, talk mm -hmm. to people, build relationships. And again, these are just new skills that are helpful the higher you move up in the organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh all great topics. I could talk about this all day. I'm sure you could too. Uh, want to be respectful of your time. We could wrap up with two super fun ones that I ask everyone. First, what's the kind of, and maybe we touched on some of it already, but what's the one piece of like conventional wisdom that maybe other people in your role would, would have or hold, but you would push back against? <laughs> this is a, this is a spicy topic. Um, Almost like I ask on purpose. <laughs> yeah. It's so... Generally, while I'm a big believer of work-life balance and I believe in exercise being healthy, I believe in everything mm -hmm. good in moderation, mm -hmm. I think early on in your career, especially what made me successful is just working hard, harder than I possibly could imagine. I spent yeah. a lot of time in my 20s and early 30s putting in a lot of hours, find tuning my skills and mm -hmm. trying to become the best I could possibly be. Mm -hmm. And I think this definitely stems from being a collegiate D1 athlete. And mm -hmm. that was what got me to college. That's what got me successful in sports. And I definitely applied that same mentality to my career. I definitely say she doesn't have to necessarily be for a particular company, right? Like you can go freelance, you can go, have your side hustle, but becoming great at your 
you know, becoming great at whatever you do, whether or not that's engineering, design, product management, is definitely something I feel like has a negative connotation today or yeah. <laughs> that I yeah. would say the way that I became good at my job was just putting in the hours. I think yeah. that's pretty contentious. <laughs> yeah. I no, I like that. My Listen, my prediction for 2023, hustle has gotten a bad rap over the last couple of years. I think it's going to, I think it's going to come back. People are going to, time's going to get kind of hairy here and people are going to realize that hustle was, hustle was a good thing and we maybe overcorrected a little bit. And I'm a big, I'm a big fan of that, that point of view. And I'm a big fan of like, Right. Like you have seasons of you have seasons of your life and like whatever sort of season you're in, whatever that balance looks like, fully hustle on that and commit to that and work hard on that. And maybe when you're early in your career, just out of college, not a lot of other commitments and responsibilities, like maybe that balance looks like, you know, 90 percent employment, 10 percent, you know, fitness or whatever. And like maybe as you get older, like that shifts, maybe family becomes a big part of it. And it's like. I'm, I'm a firm yeah, believer I, in that, like you should, whatever your balance looks like, apply your hustle toward that. Right. Yeah. And someone who just started a family as well, right? Like my, <laughs> my priorities, I definitely shifted as for sure. Yeah. Somebody who's a, as a two and a half month old baby boy, Yeah, uh, I'd say like similar to what you, I, I guess I'd echo your comment, which is like, just be thoughtful on whether or not this is a growth year for you or a rest year. And yep. I, had a, I had one of my managers, Robert Dietz, who's VP of design at Alassian phrase it that way to me. And that was actually super helpful because when I was in Sydney, I was like, Hey, okay, this is going to be a rest year for me. I'm not, it's, you know, I'm definitely mm -hmm. going to enjoy traveling. I'm going to, you know, have more of a work-life balance, enjoy the beach when I was living in yeah. Sydney. Yeah. And it was very helpful for me to be thoughtful about that versus mm -hmm. be like, Hey, you know, this is a growth year for me. And I'm actually going to work my ass yeah. off to be as yeah. successful as I possibly can be and make the team as successful as I can be. Yeah. So yeah. it is worth, I think having that distinction and finding the right balance and understanding that like, yeah, it's seasonal. It can change from month to month or quarter to quarter or year to year. hundred percent, hundred percent. Last one. I like asking product people about products. Go figure. What's a, it could be something at work. It could be even just like on the, on the outside of work side, maybe something for the new baby, who knows, but what, what's a product that you've been like kind of geeked about lately or, or, or seems kind of cool. Something you're excited about trying, looking forward to trying. Yeah. So, I mean, post acquisition, I definitely got more into investing and one of the products that I really enjoyed and we were a card of shop that iteratively for our capital management, but I've been more excited about AngelList I'd say, mm -hmm. I think that they just okay. continue to execute very, very well and have expanded out into multiple different categories. So that's a, that's a company that I'm pretty excited by and I've been following them for a few years. I think they've just built a really good product experience as well. And then mm -hmm. the other one that I really have been excited about is a company called spot virtual which is doing kind of remote, I'd say like remote collaboration, but they basically are, are making it really easy for you to collaborate virtually in both asynchronous and asynchronous fashion. Pretty cool. Kind of trying to bridge the gap, I'd say, with the the modern the modern workforce. Nice. That was, was that spot virtual? Correct. Nice, nice. I've not heard of that one. We'll have to check it out. Well, thanks for, I know we went a little long, but it, it's Great, great topics to spend some time on. Really appreciate it. If folks want to say hi or, or connect or something like that, what's the what's the best way they could do that? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. My email, or Twitter handle is PatrickT010. You can find nice. me on pretty much all social media via that. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here with us, Patrick. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Blake. Yep. See ya. Hey, Blake here again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Launch Notes podcast. 
If you work on a product team, whether you're in product management, product marketing, product ops, or any other supporting function, go check out the Launch Awesome community. Hundreds of the top product minds from companies like Google, Atlassian, Twilio, and more are in the community sharing their expertise every day. This free Slack community is a great place to connect with and learn from real product leaders, actual practitioners who are in the trenches building and launching products at some of the most exciting startups and SaaS companies around. To join, head to the link in the show notes or just do a quick search for Launch Awesome and it'll come right up. Finally, if you're a fan of this show, don't forget to subscribe so you'll be first to know about new episodes. And of course, we'd be thrilled if you left us a review. Reviews not only help other people find the show, but also just lets us know which content you find most valuable so we can create even more of it. Thanks again for being here.